Thank you all for coming um, to the and finding the new venue. Before I start, I would like to um, acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land upon which we are meeting, the Gadigal, Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. Um, and it's on their land that the university is built. And um, we acknowledge and respect their elders, um, past, present, and future. Um, my name is Elspeth Proven. I'm Professor of Gender and Cultural Studies here at the University of Sydney. Um, this talk is though being brought to us by the Sydney Environment Institute, uh, which I'm sure many of you have come across in terms of our public talks. Um, now, it's my great pleasure to introduce um, Julie Gassman. Uh, Julie is a Professor of Social Sciences, um, a critical feminist, political, economic geographer, um, a real um, power in terms of trying to get people to think more clearly, more widely, and more structurally about what counts as the politics of food. Um, her books include Agrarian Dreams and uh, Weighing In, that was published a couple of years ago. It's also though, through her many articles and also her um, work online that she has just taken up um, the, the, the debate that seems to have sort of stagnated a couple of years, more than that. Um, I mean, one of my favorite um, articles by Julie amongst a whole bunch, um, just for its mm, is why Michael Pollan et al make me want to eat Cheetos. Um, and I think that absolutely kind of goes to the belly of uh, some of the feel-good politics of food. Julie's new project um, is turning to the strawberry fields close by where she lives in Santa Cruz, or not where she lives, but where she teaches. Um, and it's from this work that um, really exciting new directions are emerging and that we're going to hear about today. So, welcome Julie. Well, thank you for that wonderful introduction. And um, I really am grateful to the Sydney Environment Institute for having me here tonight. And thank you all very much for coming. It's really a pleasure to be here. Um, and it's a pleasure to be enjoying summer again on the other side of the world. Because it looks like California actually might have a winter this year. We're hoping. So recent years have seen some testy battles over the use of several different soil fumigants of deep concern to California's lucrative strawberry industry. So today I want to focus on the debates that took place in California over two of these fumigants, methyl iodide and chloropicrin, debates that took place in both written comments and many, many public hearings. Not surprisingly, because as is often the case, these debates largely revolved on competing claims about the toxicity of the chemicals. And these kind of claims were articulated through discussions about scientific method, use of data, and sufficiency of evidence. But I'm, today I'm going to bracket the scientific controversies and focus instead on the most salient substantive theme of the debates, a contest of lives versus livelihoods. Activists, that is, consistently emphasize that the use of chemicals would cause more sickness and death, 
while the strawberry industry consistently emphasized how reduction or loss of the chemicals would precipitate a huge contraction of the California strawberry industry and result in thousands of jobs lost, hundreds of thousands of jobs. Now, at one level, there's not really anything new under the sun here. Um, in either the activist claims or the industry response, in controversies involving environmental regulation, activists typically deploy, deploy arguments to claim high, often hidden potentials of exposure or other harm, and industry typically invokes the potential of job loss from regulatory burden, claims that activists often take as hollow. So it's kind of a classic environment versus jobs battle. There's something different here, and that is both sides voice their concerns in the name of farm workers. Farm workers are a population that in California has generally been marginalized and even invisibilized in regulatory discussions for many, many years. At the same time, in casting the debate as a contest of lives and livelihoods, everyone, in effect, treated farm worker lives and livelihoods as analytically separable, including farm workers themselves to the extent that they participated. And this happened even when the sides made concessions to the other side, which they did quite frequently. This analytical separation, I want to suggest, can only make sense with a population that has been regarded as biopolitically unimportant. Unlike, say, the white men whose jobs are threatened with regu regulatory changes in mining or forestry, farm workers enter this work as already disposable, valued for their labor power, but not for their lives. So to treat this debate as typical is to miss the significance of an industry in which lives and livelihoods have been made separable through the processes of racialization, non-citizenship, <clears throat> and the political construction of labor surplus. So in this talk, I want to provide a different read on lives versus livelihoods. Specifically, I want to bring to bear a relatively new literature on disposability and surplus populations. Based in a rapprochement of Marx and Foucault, this work emphasizes how bodies that matter as labor power become disarticulated from subjects that matter as people. With its attention to historical processes, this work also provides an opportunity to understand how heretofore disposable workers might come to be valued. This is really important because the very conditions that have made farm worker lives and livelihoods appear separable have shifted. Specifically, the border and immigration policies that once have served growers in California so well by creating a class of vulnerable workers has now created a condition of shortage. In this new context, discursive frameworks that pit lives against livelihoods are not only analytically incoherent, they miss a political opportunity to push industry to deepen its biopolitical recognition of farm workers, to care, that is, in a substantive way for their health and safety. So now I want to give you some background and some more context on the strawberry industry, including the economic importance of strawberries in California. As of 2014, uh, strawberries were the fifth highest value crop in California, representing 2.6 billion in annual revenues to the state's economy. 
88% of the strawberry production in the United States. They become the number one crop in four agricultural counties and a, a second and a fifth. Um, and this is really quite a feat in Monterey County, which is uh, where the iceberg lettuce has been grown there since the um, early part of the 20th century. It's, seen, it's called the salad bowl of the nation, and strawberries now surpass lettuce as a major crop. Let me just give you a little slide here. So the four counties I'm talking about are Santa Cruz, Monterey, uh, Santa Barbara, Ventura, San Luis Obispo, the one in the middle is now coming to strawberry production. So as you see, all of those are right on the coast, and strawberries take advantage of those cool ocean breezes that the West Coast brings. Um, and in, in particularly in Santa Cruz and Monterey, you can grow strawberries or pick strawberries nine or ten months of the year because of that temperate climate. Owing to the delicate, oh, by the way, um, Strawberry production in Australia is in similar climates. I understand there's strawberries in the Yarra Valley in Victoria and Beerwith in Queensland. And I also want to say, and I forgot to mention earlier, is that a lot of the kind of pesticides that are used in California strawberries are used in Australia as well. So while the specifics of the regulatory battles might be different, the, the, the kind of facts on the ground are, are quite similar. So owing to the delicateness of the strawberry and the use of technology for nearly all other processes except for the harvest, strawberry production is highly dependent on harvest labor with about half of the per acre cost. Now, in the, by per acre cost, we're talking about 50,000 US dollars per acre to grow strawberries. Huge capital investment. So half of those are going to wages. The rest is all gone in ground prep. This means that production alone employs tens of thousands of workers, many undocumented, with many more working for pesticide applicators and irrigators and for shippers. In addition, the strawberry industry has created one of the few sources of employment in the far north of the state. I'm talking about Siskiyou and Shasta and Lassen counties, which have, were devastated by the end of forestry when all kind of most of the forests were cut down maybe 50 years ago. And so now the nurseries are based in those counties because it's really cheap land. It's not on the coast, it's mountainous, it's, and it's very cold in the winter and the strawberries love cold. They need to be cold before they can grow. So um, yeah, so there's a big nursery industry up, up in the north of the state. So many environmental conditions have con and technological developments have converged to make the strawberry industry so successful on California's coast, but chief among them has been the use of soil fumigants. These fumigants have contributed to tremendous gains in productivity since 1960 when they first started being used. And this graph taken from an, somebody else's article, um, if, if I had the data today, you would see that you'd, you'd see continued rise, continued rises in productivity. The, now, fumigants control uh, nematodes and weeds, but they are most important for controlling several different soil-borne pathogens. Um, and these pathogens attack the root system of strawberry plants, causing them to wilt and die. So on the left, you, this is a, um, a trial, which different blocks, are, some are just letting things go, some are trying different sorts of um, non-chemical fumigants, but this, this row in the middle is um, Brutus wilt, so that you can see plants just done, and that the whole field, the real field, 
with fusarium wilt. Three main pathogens are the, are the problem ones. So what fumigation does is it allows growers to plant on the same block year after year. Except in some areas, like in Santa Cruz and Monterey County, they often rotate with vegetable growers. Um, and the reason for that is the strawberry growers want to have the berries, they want to have the ground for more than 12 months. They want to have it for 15 months so they can prep, get a 10-month harvest season, and then rip it out and fumigate. And the vegetable growers can get two rotations of lettuce, say, in, in the remaining eight or nine months. And the vegetable growers, this is a, one of the dirty little secrets here, is the vegetable growers get the benefits of fumigation without all the flack for it. So they love when the strawberry growers fumigate. In fact, some of them are, hold, hold the master leases and they insist that the strawberry growers fumigate. So restrictions on the use of fumigants pose a huge threat for the strawberry industry and allied businesses, if you look at these photos. At the same time, fumigants are some of the most toxic substances used in agriculture. Um, they, are, they necessarily volatize, that's what makes them work, so they're subject to drift. And they are harmful to, they're most harmful to those in the immediate vicinity of fumigation, which would be neighbors and uh, workers and, and, and indeed the fumigators themselves, who are generally masked up, but they have to, they have to remove the hose from the rig and who knows what kind of off-gassing they get. And it's really interesting here, too, because fumigation causes no real harm to consumers. To our knowledge, there's no, we don't, it's possible, but we don't know that the chemical gets into the plant and somehow gets into the berry. Um, but a lot of the, you know, brouhaha has been around, it, the, it, the fight against methyl iodide that I'll talk to you about to you in a second was all about consumers saying, I don't want those cancer-causing chemicals on my body. So this is a... This particular fight is, really goes up against the limits of kind of consumer politics is about not in my body politics. Um, Christine Parker, who's an Australian uh, scholar on strawberries and has talked about pesticides, and she talks about um, the limits of consumer choice as a way to regulate chemicals in strawberries. And, and I think with fumigants, it even goes beyond that sort of argument. Okay, so just running through the chemicals here, methyl bromide, which was long used, is a designated neurotoxicant and developmental toxicant with possible epigenetic or intergenerational effects. Methyl iodide is a known neurotoxin and carcinogen. It's been used to induce cancer in laboratory rats. It's associated with suppression of thyroid hormone synthesis, respiratory illness, and lung tumors. It's probably a cause of miscarriages, birth deformities, and non-normal development. Chloropicrin, which is essentially tear gas, was designated a toxic air contaminant by the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency, and activists say it's carcinogenic as well. So for over half a century, methyl bromide was the fumigant of choice. Um, with no other fumigants as reliably effective. However, in 1991, the Montreal Protocol on Ozone-Defeating Substances, um, uh, which was initially signed in 1987, mandated the phase-out of methyl bromide. As a signatory to the Montreal Protocol, the U.S. agreed to stop producing and importing 
all methyl bromide by 2005. But then, right as that 2005 deadline was about to appear, the U.S. started um, lobbying for what are called critical use exemptions. Um, so critical uses, as defined by the language promoted by the U.S., were those for which there was no technically and economically feasible alternatives and it would result in significant market disruption. So crucially, the case for Q's was made on the basis that the ban would make a significant portion of the California strawberry industry economically unviable. Opponents of the Q's not only focused on the environmental issue of ozone depletion, but also on the health effects of methyl bromide for those who work with it. But regardless of the temporary, the apparent success of the U.S. in gaining these cues, these critical use exemptions, and the strawberry industry benefiting for a while, still using minute amounts of methyl bromide, um, they were a temporary solution because as of, it was supposed to be this year, but it looks like it's next year, all uses except for nursery uses um, will be phased out completely. Nurseries are covered under a separate quarantine exemption because you don't want to, so they say you don't want to start a plant with a, a soil pathogen already sold to it. And a lot of those starts are shipped overseas. I just found out on the web the other day that a lot of uh, New Zealand strawberry production uses California varieties. I don't know if they get the, I don't know if they get the starts from there or not. Um, okay, so. Methyl iodide, that's the one that causes cancer in laboratory rats, was expected to replace methyl bromide and even received an ozone protection award. Um, but it was far more toxic, toxic and there was an intense activist campaign to thwart it. Growers didn't adopt it and the agency in charge of, of the registration process mishandled it and that, that led to a lawsuit. So it was withdrawn from commercial use 15 months after it was registered to be allowed. Now the demise of methyl iodide is a really interesting story. I have an article out about it on how activist strategy and industry hubris did it in, but it's not the focus of today's talk. The debates on chloropicrin followed right on the heels of the methyl iodide battle and were argue, arguably precipitated by that battle since the California's Department of Pesticide Regulation had taken much heat over its handling of methyl iodide. Chlorpicrin had once been used in combination with methyl bromide because there's some synergistic effects and also because it's a warm warning agent because it smells basically and methyl bromide you can't smell. But with the phase out of methyl bromide growers began to use higher percentages of chlorpicrin or even to use it alone. So the context of the debates over chlorpicrin were a set of proposed mitigation measures that at least appeared to go significantly beyond the requirements of the United States Environmental Protection Agency. So methyl bromide, methyl iodide, and chlorpicrin are quite different chemicals. They have different potential effects and they have different regulatory actions up for grabs, how to phase out, whether to register it, how to mitigate it. Debates on them were also uh, fought in very different arenas from the international treaties to state regulatory agencies. 
to, uh, it, so there were some debates on, in local counties about whether they would ban it from, ban it from the county in, term, in, in the case of methyl iodide. Yet, as suggested in that first quote I put up, the underlying content of the debates was remarkably similar. In fact, indecipherable. Very much boiling down to lives versus livelihoods. Now, there's an abundance of data on these debates, um, especially for methyl iodide, which was battled over several years in multiple venues. Um, includes 50,000, 3,000 public comments on methyl iodide registration, almost all of which were opposed. Um, but for this talk, I'm not drawing on those 53,000 public comments, which many of which were all about not in my body, I don't want those cancer coating strawberries on my baby's body. Um, I'm focusing on the one on the comments that were brought by, by real stakeholders, by the strawberry industry, by activists, by shippers, by retailers, by public health professionals, by environmentalists. And so it's coming from all these uh, public hearings that I don't need to go through because they would be like, you really care about what the assembly committee's name is. Okay, so again, bracketing the issues of scientific controversy, activists consistently cast doubt on whether safety could be assured. And by activists here, I'm referring in a shorthand to folks representing public health, environmental, and labor groups, as well as individual community members and farm workers who spoke at these. Um, those coming from and representing people living near the fields tended to focus on the problems for neighbors. For instance, they mentioned that the tarps that are used to keep the fumigants in would rip, or that buffer zones were not large enough, and that the buffer zones in between where you can treat it and how close a home is. They said they weren't large enough um, to give the propensity for these chemicals to drift. However, many commenters drew specific attention to the issue of worker exposures, unusually so. Setting the tone was the chair of the Assembly Labor and Employment Committee meeting, Bill Monning, and Assembly is just one of California's governing bodies. He opened one of the rehearings on methyl iodide by saying that too often in my experience with pesticide issues, worker health and safety takes a back burner. Unfortunately, farm workers have often been put in harm's way and end up being the guinea pigs before a chemical is banned at the federal or state level. I do understand the utility of fumigants. However, I think the worst thing possible would be for us to rush to find an alternative to adopt that is equally, if not more destructive to worker health and safety. Several people testifying drew attention to inadequate protective equipment for farm workers. Most telling was the testimony by farm workers themselves. So I'm just going to let you read this slide, but Hammond is the, um, and Freund's are the members of the review committee, and Ms. Espinoza is this woman testifying, a farm worker. Now some noted that the very mitigation measures that are, that are designed to protect neighbors, such as these tarps, put farm workers at risk. <clears throat> so in here, you see what happens, a farm worker is planting and they basically punch a hole in this tarp. And these are kind of two different styles of, these, of tarping and fumigating, by the way. This is bed fumigation, that one's called broadcast fumigation or flat fume. So in this, they, they, they fumigate it and they inject it and then they punch holes and so you get off-gassing when they punch a hole. And then this guy, 
is a shoveler, and there are a lot of them. I, I, and what they do is they, when tarps fly up in the wind, they go around and shovel dirt to hold them back down. You see he's wearing absolutely no protective equipment. Okay. Uh, something I don't have a photo for, but commenters also noted that those design assigned to monitor the fumigations, another requirement, could be farm workers who would have to, um, they wanted to monitor for sensory irritation. They didn't, they trusted their, they trusted the equipment for setting uh, buffer zones, but they didn't trust the equipment for actually detecting if there was a problem with chloropicrin drip. So they wanted to have people, or they do have people in the fields that basically stand around and sniff after fumigation to see if there's, um, there's um, sensory irritation. Okay, so while public health and safety was the key theme in virtually all activist comments, it is not the case that industry entirely ignored the dangers of the chemical. Several industry comments framed it as a relative matter, suggesting that the use of fumigants, while not optimal, would mitigate a greater environmental harm. And I think it's important here because the industry has gotten a lot wiser about this because they used to say, oh, I drink those chemicals, and now they say, okay, we get that they're dangerous because it w was not a credible line. <laughs> um, so speaking that at the Salinas chloropicrin hearings, for example, a vegetable grower remarked that starting with clean soil free of pests has also enabled us to use fewer pesticides. However, most comments from industry that acknowledge the health and safety issues folded them into larger rationales about industry viability and more significantly protecting the livelihoods of farm workers. As put by a farmer at the assembly joint hearings of methyl bromide, excuse me, methyl iodide, as a farmer, I do not make the decision to use any of these products lightly, but I do need the option to use them if and when it becomes necessary. We do need these tools in agriculture. With that being said, I agree that all precautions need to be taken to ensure these products are safely used. The farmers in California are not on an even playing field when it comes to competing with other states and most importantly with other countries. This not only impacts the farmer, but also impacts the farm worker. Now, one of the ways that the industry made their case was to speak about the absence of viable non-chemical alternatives. Someone from the California Strawberry Commission, which is the industry group, um, spoke at length about the enormous financial resources that California strawberry farmers have put into research on methyl bromide alternatives, more than any commodity group in the world, he said. Unfortunately, he said, experts have not found either anything that is commercially viable for strawberry farming except for the combined use of other fumigants, including methyl iodide. He also noted that some of the non-chemical alternatives would require more energy, plastic, and water, which is all true. Now, in arguing for the necessity of the chemicals and the absence of a viable alternative, most comments on behalf of the industry focus on what the loss of fumigants would mean for the economy. Making explicit this connection was a comment from a Salinas, that's one of the cities <coughs> in one of these counties, a Salinas attorney speaking at the Monterey Board of Supervisors hearing. Without an effective alternative to methyl bromide, the sky will fall on agriculture. The strawberry lettuce industry, which is dependent on high yields to compete, will shrink. Capital will go elsewhere. Jobs will be lost. Headquarters will not be built. Like the frozen vegetable industry that collapsed on the Central Coast, the strawberry industry will not be economically sustainable and we will all be asking what happened. I 
can tell you how it happens. It starts situations like this one. Now, many commenters cited statistics showing revenues and job loss. Um, for an example, in written comments on methyl iodide, an attorney cited an analysis that found that failure to register methyl iodide would result in a decrease in total economic activity of approximately $1.3 billion and the loss of approximately 50,000 jobs. Others made these points in a more personal register, and this is somebody speaking at the Salinas Chloropicrin hearing, a grower, and this guy was a grower and consultant in Monterey County. So he says, for those people who think it's bad, everything's bad, smoking is bad, everyone smokes, chloropicrin is bad, some of you are not even around the fumes like we are, yet we depend on it, my family depends on it, it's really hard to understand how it is that you guys will come and oppose to something that we are doing and benefit for you, everybody, providing food, providing jobs, more than anything. I just want to point out this thing about providing food. One of the arguments that's been made is that, is that the strawberry, and it really gets to some of the biopolitical questions here, is that the strawberry industry is providing fresh, healthy food for the masses. Well, um, okay. okay. Well, comments such as these invoke far more li livelihoods in the economy more generally. A subset of commenters, commenters focus most, almost entirely on the jobs that the strawberry industry brings. So at the Redding hearing on chloropicrine, the Redding is in the far north of the state, so that's where those nurseries are I was speaking about. This is a staff person for an assembly representative, and she was highlighting the extreme poverty in the region. She also noticed, noted the importance of keeping growers in business, because that's the thing that drives the economy, and we are desperately hanging on to every job that we have. But this over here is from a farm worker speaking for himself. I'm here and I show support. There's a lot of unemployment where I live because there's not enough harvest because they are not allowing or approving fumigation. And I'm here to support this because my family's devoted to the field. I know that fumigant is dangerous because it is harm, but people need to work. Because all the people where I'm from where I'm from, this is, they do this and nothing else. And then he says that they actually have safe practices. Other commenters appear to speak directly on behalf of farm workers. A grower advocate we interviewed who had participated in these debates claimed that the workers I've talked to would rather have jobs so they can feed their families. Families, they're not worried about getting cancer. Putting a perhaps finer point on the issue was the president of the California Strawberry Commission and he was speaking at the Assembly Health and Environmental Safety and Toxic Materials meeting. And this is a really important quote. As a farm worker employee, we optimize every day in the, calendar, in the calendar to make money, to bring home money so we can pay our bills. Every day is crucial during the season. And when you have a field that is infected with some soil disease, the plants are wilting. Very limited fruit on the plant. It's an obvious choice to fumigate. Many workers will, will come to me and say, we can't make it here. There are one crew that, is more of that has more of that percentage of that infected area, and they're saying, this isn't fair. We need fields that are producing to make money. So clean soil is integral to the farmer, of course, but the worker is being forgotten here. They have to make a living, and each year there are a certain amount of days in which they can do that. So what he was basically suggesting is that farmers need to fumigate so that farm workers can earn enough money on earn enough money to live. But that's because they're all paid on piece rates. 
or a combination of wages and peace. And this is not a one-off comment, by the way. In my research with strawberry growers, I have found that many growers consider field conditions and fumigation as a way to attract workers amidst this labor shortage. So I'm going to return to that point. But just as the industry did not entirely dismiss issues of health and safety, the activists did not entirely dismiss issues of livelihood, but rather they suggested that health and safety trumped livelihood. Comments in this vein, not surprisingly, came from groups close to workers and from workers from them, themselves. This is from a group called Lideres Campesinas, an organization that supports women farm workers. And basically she says, we know that the strawberry industry is a good source of income for our people, but it's time to make a change. We don't want more ill people. I've heard that without the chemical, the strawberries go bad and there will be job people will be jobless. But I ask myself, do we want helpful strawberries or do we want ill people? That these debates were highly polarized around the themes of lives versus livelihoods was lost on no one, including the grower I quoted at the beginning. Now, for the growers, polarization was a problem in its own right. And many people, com many of the industry people commented that the debates were divisive um, or hurtful to our community. For the activists, the idea that the industry could speak for the community appeared to be the problem, as there were occasional references about how the industry's focus on jobs was wanting, if not utter dissimulation. So this is a great one. Okay, I understand it's a multi-million dollar business. I understand it produces a lot of jobs. You never once mentioned uh, safety. You always mentioned jobs, 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 jobs. Okay, how about safety? Oh gosh, sorry, this uh, slide got messed up. Okay. And if you guys think that, hey, oh, these levels aren't toxic to the people that live there, you can come to my house anytime they spray. I will give you three square meals a day. You come and hang out. See if it's toxic or not. Anybody willing to pay, take me up on that? That's what I live with every day. Regardless of whether these debates were divisive, no one questioned whether the very terms of the debate were problematic. That perhaps lives and livelihoods are two sides of the same coin. Indeed, that last comment, notably skeptical of industry's position, emphasized the importance of keeping them separable, neglecting that risks to livelihoods are at once risks to lives and vice versa. To me, this is jarringly incoherent in a capitalist economy in which, by definition, Making a living is a necessity for practices that ensure a modicum of health, including eating, sleeping, seeking medical care, etc. But it's equally incoherent for growers, since continued access to a healthy, health, continued access to healthy laboring material bodies is what materializes those strawberries into money. So this is where I want to turn to this newish literature on surplus populations and disposability, because in key respects, it problematizes that separation of lives and livelihoods. So as articulated in these debates, lives versus livelihoods seems to make a stark contrast between life as participation in the wage economy and life as health and well-being or at least the body's ability to carry on and not suffer early death. 
Interestingly, these debates map onto apparent differences between Marx and Foucault. Marx, for example, emphasized how processes of primitive accumulation that separated the labor from his or her, his or her direct means of production and reproduction made participation in the wage economy the basis of survival. Yet while Marx saw the separation of life and livelihood into separate spheres, he by no means suggested that one could do without the other. To be sure, he saw the wage as essential to life, for, without, for the wage allowed the reproduction of the working body as well as for the working class as a whole. Such reproduction made future exploitation and hence profits possible. For his part, Foucault's concerns with life were never distinct from capitalism. In History of Sexuality, for example, where he spells out his ideas of biopower, he argued that protection and improvement of the population became an exigency of the modern state precisely to ensure productivity for the health of the economy, the, a capitalist economy. And applications of biopower included not only those strategies that controlled environments but also those that would allow the worthy to live more healthily and vigorously through the, through the provisions of life's needs. That Foucaultian biopower was not about the production and protection of life itself for life's sake, but for what was economically useful, is quite evident in his distinction of the population, those who were made to live, as he famously wrote, from the people, those who were made to die or let to die, depending on what era he was talking about. For those who were discarded or let to die were precisely those who were not economically useful or represented some sort of threat to the population, a point that's also been driven home by Dylan and Reed. So at least on the question of lives and livelihoods, Foucault and Marx had different emphases, different methodologies, all that, but they were not in opposition. So a rapprochement of Marx and Foucault is also at the core of recent work on surplus populations that usefully sheds light on the attenuation of lives and livelihood. Scholars working on this topic note how Marx divided surplus populations into latent, floating, and stagnant, distinguishing those with secure employment from those with no chance of getting a job, and thus of no use to capitalism. Those in that last category were quintessentially Foucault's biopolitical others, let to die because they are not wage workers or would never, may, never would be. Those working on disposability make a somewhat different cut, differentiating those who are officially valued for their labor, even wage, but are otherwise are of little consequence biopolitically. These necro-political subjects, as McIntyre and Nass call them, are gener generally racially marked subjects who are useful as laboring bodies, but whose futures are not protected, precisely because of the existence of surplus populations. And I understand that in, in Australian horticulture, and Australian fruit and vegetable production these days, there's also disposable workers, um, African immigrants, or black immigrants. As put by Melissa Wright, the value of these labors to capitalism is that they have been constructed as disposable and thus readily left behind when they became sick or less productive. So in these renderings of disposability, 
Disposability is, is enacted through hyper-exploitation. The idea that is, is that wage labor is so hard on the body that it gets used up. Elsewhere, disposability has referred to bodies that are poisoned in the course of their work. So Gidwani and Reddy discuss how the accretion of, of toxic e-waste in the new e-economy in India has created new jobs in waste salvaging for populations that are otherwise surplus. Crucially, though, their point is that having such populations already marked as disposable as surplus is what makes them employable in the job in the first place. So the question is, how might all this apply to farm workers in California's strawberry industry? For a long time, California farm workers occupied a liminal status, valued for their labor, while for the most part biopolitically discarded. They are classic disposable workers. Now, I just want to show you, these folks are running. They're not running from La Migra. They're running because, again, they're paid by the piece rate. And so they run down those aisles. Strawberry production is the worst on farm workers' bodies. And one of the reasons there's a labor shortage, which I'll get to, to in, in a minute, is that they prefer to go work in raspberries, where they can at least work standing up. Central to the production of both farm worker dispensability and disposability has been US-Mexico <coughs> immigration and border policy. And historically, this worked through the Bracero program. The Bracero program was instituted during World War II when there was a labor shortage because all the poor Southerners went to work in the war factories and so they needed um, uh, um, Mexican immigrant workers who had worked in California long before but then they'd been deported. Um, so the Bracero program was basically a guest worker pro program which pretty much institutionalized low wages um, at the same time constructing farm workers as biological threats, as Don Mitchell has argued. So the last, so it, a lot of this starts with the Bracero program, but it, it, and there's this blip of recognition for farm workers in the 1970s for reasons I can discuss in the Q&A if you're curious, and then you have this rise of the undocumented worker in the 1980s. Um, and, and a lot of that happens with the tightening of the U.S. border, which has gotten much worse, um, particularly since um, uh, uh, 2001, September 11th. So this border has really worked to create workers who are both dispensable and disposable. They're dispensable because they're cheap and can't complain but they're disposable, they get used up, they get, talk, they get work in terrible conditions, and they get toxic exposure. So the border has forced those desperate to work to cross under very dangerous conditions. I don't know if you're aware of this, but a few thousand people die in the Arizona deserts every year crossing. And this fear of deportation um, has in turn depressed wages and encouraged workers to forgo reporting of pesticide use violations, for example. Um, that, again, that makes them all the more desirable. At the same time, because they are cast, they are cast as a, um, they are crossing illegally. They have been cast as a drain on health and education resources, putatively meant for citizens. So, in these conditions, farm workers have been let to die, in many senses of the term. Crucially, though, disposability has mainly rested on labor surplus. Yet today, growers are experiencing a labor shortage. 
This is indicated in signs like this, advertising for blackberry pickers. Um, it is indicated in growers' unrelenting complaints and even willingness to pay for dangerous border crossings. I mean, I hear all, every grower I spoke with, almost every grower, complained more about the labor shortage than the fumigation regulation. It is also indicated in grower attention to field conditions to attract workers already in California, even justifying the use of fumigants, as we saw, by saying that workers can earn a living with hardier plants. The irony then is this, this tightened border that has so deeply benefited this industry has created a condition today that have made those who have successfully crossed, as well as their children, all the more essential to the industry. So farm workers in that context, you would think, can no longer be discarded. So what I'm arguing, in other words, is that lives versus livelihood trope has, that has so defined the debates over soil fumigants works neither analytically nor strategically. Analytically, it is based on a non-dialectical conception that contrasts life as participation in the wage economy and life as health and well-being, disregarding that the purpose of livelihood is to make, is to live, and living takes money. To the extent that livelihoods have been disarticulated from life, it is a product of pernicious historical forces, including the creation of massive surplus populations, which have enabled capitalism to accelerate the extraction of labor power from life, and for that matter, to poison bodies that work because other bodies are always, are, are, are always available. This is the condition that the literature on surplus, surplus populations and disposability has argued so well. And yet, as I've suggested here, the changing circumstances of the U.S.-Mexico border is putting a limit on that disregard. And we may see the revaluing of lives that were once deemed disposable. So strategically, I think both the activists and the industry would do well to consider the limits of their tropes. For industry to invoke workers in one place and dismiss their needs elsewhere casts doubts on, on the sincerity of their claims. For activists to focus on health alone without engaging the circumstances in which workers are recruited, disciplined, and remunerated, all of which impact health and well-being, is oddly narrow. In this specific case, it also represents a missed opportunity for activists to push industry to recognize that farm worker lives do matter. Now, currently in the United States, um, the political climate around immigration is as bad as it can get. You know, I'm sure you've heard Donald Trump. I mean, this last week it got really horrid, not so much about illegal uh, undocumented farm workers, but more about Muslims. But um, the point here is that a guest worker program to growers' liking is, to, to growers liking is unlikely to materialize anytime soon. Growers need a labor force for the future for their own livelihoods. So the use of chemicals that compromise existing and future farm worker lives, as many do, quite literally, since many of these chemicals have these intergenerational effects, in no way secures industry futures. <clears throat> so, by way of a coda, 
Where we are today is that the writing on the, is on the wall regarding fumigants. The strawberry industry is increasingly resigned to the idea that an, an acceptable and efficacious drop-in fumigant is unlikely to appear. Um, and the Department of Pesticide Regulation in California has talked about phasing out all fumigants within a decade or so. It may just be to scare them, but they're talking about it. Some growers will go out of business, as they already do all the time, particularly low-resource Latino growers who were once farm workers, by the way. But the sky is unlikely to fall. New regimes of addressing soil pathogens will at the same time create entirely new work needs and routines and create new strawberry growing regions away from California's central coast. And it is quite possible that these will not only be less toxic, but create better packing conditions and perhaps even more jobs. They're standing up. So that's why I want to leave it here with this intriguing photo, which raises many more questions about California's strawberry industry and whose and what lives will count. I want to thank you and I thank my funders, the National Science Foundation in the United States. And then I'll go back to hydroponics. <laughs> Thank you so much, Judy, for um, um, so much stuff to think with, both um, empirically and theoretically. Um, questions, please. Two questions for you. The first one is in your, your, your graph, around 1980, there was a big drop in production per acre. Productivity. Mm. Productivity, and I'm sort of wondering, and then it seems to come back up and down. I'm sort of curious what that is. Um, uh, a bit of a flattening. More flattening, okay. Yeah, I'm not sure. I, I haven't identified that, to be honest. And, and the second one, mm -hmm. in terms of farm workers or, or workers in Australia, your, your comment about them being from Africa, I mean, is that. Is that is it, I'm, I'm just not familiar with that. I know a lot of backpackers do a lot of um, work here. Well, the, the, the woofers, the world, willing workers on organic farms. I mean, this is something that was in the a ABC, right? The, 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 there's a lot. I don't know. I mean, they call them black, which I don't know if that means. What's that? What's that? Okay. But yes, that seems to be really prevalent in Australia, from what I hear. I don't have empirical evidence. Lisa? Uh, thank you very much. That was fascinating. I just wondered if um, during any of the discussions that you were, um, I don't know, you were part of or you were reviewing, did the conversation ever go on to potentially the true cost of what a strawberry would cost to to grow if the labor is Yes, I mean, um, well, not so much the labor. I mean, one of the conversations around the phase out of fumigants, because some, some of the industry thinks it's gloom and doom. But some are like, it, there's going to be a shakeout, and you know what? We don't care because uh, the low-resource farmers who are really not good at doing this anyway, as the big growers say, they'll lose, and then, you know, they'll just grab up their acreage. Um, but they'll say, you know, the costs will just go up. Um, and right, right now, there's a problem. I mean, amidst, here's the irony of this. Amidst all this whining and complaining, Productivity continues to grow. Prices are low because there's an oversupply of strawberries. They did what they call diversion this summer, which means they put it into the frozen strawberry, which are barely worth picking. 
Um, so, uh, but that's a different question than that true cross argument. For, for us to pay the true cost of um, growing food, you know, the public health costs of chemicals, the real wages um, would cost so, you know, the cost of berries would be prohibitive. Um, and so this is always a tension in agriculture. How do you have food security and a reasonably biorational ecological agriculture have farmers compensated and have farm workers well compensated? And it's kind of impossible without state intervention. But it's particularly bad in the United States right now because we have such terrible income inequality. So. But it, it's kind of an impossible. There's kind of no way out except for some sort of subsidy. Oh, Professor, the strawberries, lettuce, like the forest tree, and 96% of vegetation takes everything, the C3s, taking everything from the soil. They take very little in through the leaf matter. I'm surprised that they're taking in humans in through the leaf system. I subscribe, and that graph may tell the story, <coughs> that dedicated planting of the C3s, strawberries, lettuce, trees, and 96% of plants, has exhausted the soil's elements and reproduction, mm. and therefore has become dependent upon external influence. Added to this, the plastic cover has also killed further life within the soil. Mm. It seems to me that we've gone down this path saying, although we've destroyed the soil, we're now down this path and saying, how can we save the soil? I work in this area around the world. I grow mm. soil, right. mm. elements and food in deserts around the world, except for Australia. Mm. Why don't you take a new approach and start regenerating soil? Because you're going to have a desert in the not so distant future. Mm. Start growing soil, and you can do this across all of California engage millions of people in new careers <laughs> getting the rain to transpire back to the catchment. Well that's what that's what the integrated organic growers are doing. But here here's the thing with the of course that's true. These pathogens by the way as far as I understand and this is more research I need to do they've been around for a long time the soil pathogens as long as strawberries have but they become more virulent and and, the, and they're particularly virulent right now in Southern California, which has been very hit by the drought. So the, the, the stress, there's no question that there, the stress is um, increasing, the, increasing the virulence. But here's the thing, like the way to grow strawberries in an integrated system, and it is being done in California, requires rotation with brassicas, generally. Compost and cover crops with brassicas, like broccoli. And you can't grow it every, you can't grow it every year, every other year, or even every three years. You have to rotate those strawberries on that same block maybe every four or five years. Um, so strawberries become a minor crop in that production system. So it's working right now for integrated organic growers because they do that and they can sell their broccoli. And because really, how much broccoli can you really eat? Um, <laughs> I mean, some people in Spain, I understand that they, they just gunder the broccoli. They don't even pick it because it's just, but hold on one second. So they can do that. They have a completely different business model. They're, they often are growing on cheaper land. 
and they can charge really high prices. But these strawberry growers, and a lot of them are experimenting with organics, but they're not doing a, a deep ecological version of organics. They're doing like two or three rotations. It, it, it's not going to work. Soil is like a bank. You can't keep drawing down on it yeah. and pathogens survive because its opposite consuming number yeah. has been killed probably by the chemical. Okay. I grow strawberries this big. But what I'm saying is the business model and the land value is all very hard to break out of it. I understand it biorationally, but the economic model is just, it doesn't square for these guys. It mm -hmm. would take a lot to change them. Mm -hmm. um, Alana, right here, and then another question. Hey, thank, thank you, Julie, for such a great presentation. I was wondering about, I guess this goes back to the question of what you're growing again, but the politi political economy of tomatoes mm -hmm. compared to strawberries, just thinking about the success that the Coalition for Immokalee Workers has had in Florida with um, their campaign where they hit the big retailers like Publix. Mm -hmm. and campaign for a penny extra pound for the workers. So that's obviously a campaign about wages. But I was just wondering whether there are any, and, and this is more about activist strategies, but are there any campaigns that are looking at that type of approach <coughs> to, um, if you like, reforming this industry? Um, the big fight was against methyl iodide. That was huge. Um, there's not... Uh, I mean, the United Farm Workers in California hasn't really done labor organizing in a very long time. They were involved in the methyl iodide fight, so there really isn't anything similar. Um, I also think, you know, that the Immokalee workers had the advantage of being able to target particular um, fast food service, and strawberries don't really go through those channels, right? So you have to have you have to have strategies that kind of match up with the kind of industry characteristics. Um, and, and the thing that was interesting about the methyl iodide fight is that, like I said, 53,000 comments, almost all of them opposed, mainly from outraged consumers. A good half of it got it wrong about what the effects of the fumigants, who would, they would affect. And yet it obviously worked, too. But, you, you know, you want to move away from that kind of consumption politics too, right? It was, it's a strange thing because it, it was effective, but it, it also missed the boat. Mm. Yeah. I mean, it is interesting. At yeah. one point, they, people were talking about food security, and as you've argued about yuppie chow, yeah. um, there's not a lot of you know, nutrients, well, especially in lettuce, but in, in strawberries, you know, <laughs> I think really and truly, if you were being totally rational um, and instrumental, you'd have those broccoli. Um, well, strawberries have vitamin C. Oh, I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Hi. Is it me or you? No, no, you. It's me? Yep. Okay, thanks, Julie. Um, I wanted to ask you a bit more about the farmers you mentioned right at the end, the growers who've, you know, from Mexico who've managed to become growers. Yeah. Um, I find it really interesting that the disposability follows them even once they're growers because they're the disposable growers while other growers aren't. And I was wondering if you could reflect on that. I like that. Thank you. Well, it's, yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. Let me, I should um, just say a little bit more about this because it's another piece of this research. So um, th there's a classic book on strawberry production by Miriam Wells. Has anybody ever read that? It's, it's a great book. 
Um, at the time she wrote it, she talked about really three different sets of growers, Latino growers and, um, and uh, Japanese growers and Anglo growers. They had different regions, really different kind of technical outlooks and different sort of resources. And the, and the Anglo growers and the white growers were doing the best and the, and the Latino growers were quite marginal on the most marginal land. Now, today in the strawberry industry, I would say something like 70-80% of the growers are Latino. And so some of them did come from farm worker families a long time ago. And like I, I, this guy I met in it, who graciously gave me an interview who had 1,000 acres in strawberry production. That's about 53 million US dollars a year. Take that in. He's Latino. Yeah. And his brother has some, something else. So some of these guys have made it big time. So it's no longer exactly racialized. But that doesn't answer your question. So, but what maybe does answer your question, because I think the way what's been happening with the, the low resource growers is that the, the, a couple of the shippers do not even do their own growing. They, um, Driscoll's, you've heard of Driscoll's probably, they don't do any of their own growing. All the work they do is with independent or share crop growers. And so what they've been doing is they um, find a very smart, competent, entrepreneurial farm worker and they'll make them into a ranch manager and when he succeeds at that, they'll, they'll go into a share cropping arrangement with them. Um, and uh, the, what basically, I mean, there's various versions of this, and it's actually on the wane, but what they do is they'll say, here, you, we'll get you the land, and we'll get you the bank loan, and you have to buy our strawberries, and you have to buy our crates, and you have to buy all this, and we'll split the proceeds. Um, and so these guys are screwed, mm -hmm. you know, because there's, um, they, they have so much of that, they're, their income goes just toward paying back the loan and, and just paying for the cost of the berries and the boxes and this and this and this and this. So those guys, um, this is the empirical part of your question, so those guys are um, being treated as disposable and they go out of business all the time. And the ones that we interviewed were very unhappy. Um, so I think um, uh, it's still a mechanism of disposability through surplus. Right, because there's always another guy who will say, "Yeah, I can, you know, sure, I'll go into business for myself. That sounds great." Um, I have, you know, I'd have to think more about that, but I think it's the ba it's the basic mechanism of surplus, um, and there's not uh, there's not a shortage of people willing to do that. There's a shortage of people willing to pick at this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Thanks, Julie. Um, if this industry does start to proceed. Which industry or sector is likely to come in? Are they labor intensive, and what's their capabilities like? Oh, they, when, those who don't grow um, strawberries grow houses. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, um, okay, that that's not that is serious. I mean, a, a lot of first of all, a lot of landowners in these in these areas they say they they farm houses. They don't farm. Uh, I mean, they know or they'll say they farm. Growers. I mean, they don't. They're no longer in the business themselves. But a lot of these areas, because they're on the coast, they're competing with suburbanites for that cool ocean breeze, where we don't need air conditioning in the summer at all. So, um, so that's one answer. But raspberries were really out competing, or kind of taking over a lot of strawberry land. They're a little bit further inland. Um, 
And uh, as I said, the workers prefer picking in, in raspberries, and raspberries are even more high value. We're talking about seventy or $80,000 of capital requirements per acre. That's less, less than a hectare, um, half, more than half as much. So raspberries, but after that, I don't know. You know, I think a lot of, I mean, a lot of these areas are just not going to be uh, farmland much longer. David? Oh, sorry. Yeah, she's been okay. sorry. Yeah. I, I just wondered, somebody else asked about the graph that they have up to 1979. I wondered if that production could have been associated with the phasing out of DDT. It could have been. I haven't looked that far back on this, sorry. That's a good question. I don't know. I don't know if and when TDT was used. I mean, I did read just today um, that another one of the fumigants that I didn't talk about was widely used in the 80s, and then they started cracking down on it, and they wouldn't allow it, and then they started. Then they put a township cap on it. So it could have been that. Okay, David and Jane. So. Um, that was really interesting, having lived a number of years in California and watching strawberries turn into houses. Yeah. <laughs> um, but you end with hydroponics and the organic industry. And I'm really, I'm honestly curious how much of a difference that makes to the lives of workers. I mean, you, I mean a big part of the talk is the, the contrast between live, lives and livelihoods, and the lives part is health. Yeah. And so the health issue is reduced, at least part of the health issue is reduced when you move to the But the disposability of the workers. Oh yeah, the disposability of the workers is absolutely the same in, in organics right now. Um, I mean, for instance, there was a big battle over um, banning a loophole over the use of the short-handled hoe, El Cotilla, and the strawberry and the organic industry opposed that because they said our workers need to work squatting, need to work squatting. So the organic industry has not been a real um, uh, champion of worker rights. I mean, what they'll say is like, look, we're exposing the workers to fewer pesticides. Uh, the reason I put up the hydroponics, and this is something I've just been playing with as I work through this project, is um, hydroponics and controlled environment and agriculture, it's all being posed as this kind of third way that's neither big, bad industrial nor integrated organic, which never has really been able to scale up. And so I find it fascinating because, um, you know, it's, it's as opposed to this man's question of like rejuvenating soils, it's like, let's get rid of the soil altogether. Let's <laughs> yeah. use peat and, and coconut husk and soilless substrate and just get rid of the nature altogether, which is fascinating. But it's also really interesting because it does offer the opportunity to um, have better working conditions. It would still be a political struggle, but if they, in hydroponic operations, the ones that I've seen pictures of and the ones that I've witnessed, you, they're planting in trays or they're or here. So at least in terms of working conditions, it could be a lot better. And a lot of them are not using, they're using, they're not using pesticides, they're using biological pest control. So I'm, it's, Empirically, I don't know what it really means. I mean, I was in uh, Almeria, uh, was it last year, where um, that's in southern Spain, where there's, I don't know, uh, thousands of square miles of greenhouses. And the one I visited 
looked really great er ergonomically, but I think some of them, you know, they use a lot of North African immigrant workers, and I hear the conditions aren't so good. So it's really a thought experiment. But I think it offers a potential for improved working condition, and that's why I end with that. But, you know, it's still going to take political struggles. It can't be a technical solution, right, to have um, better improvements for workers or more money. Hey, Jane, and then Ms. Jackson. Julie. Mm -hmm. oh, um, I'm interested in the way that you are practicing out the consumer and consumer politics. You do return to the notion that there will be a uh, there have there have been political struggles. There will be, but you keep saying, well, the consumer is almost um, gets in the way of the real struggle, um, which is uh, farm worker lives and livelihoods. But you also do keep invoking high value, the high value crop of the strawberries, the high value uh, raspberry or blueberry, or you know, and what might take its place, but the higher value still hydroponic strawberry, the higher value organic. So mm -hmm. how can consumers not be a very big part of the struggle? Oh, I, I don't mean, I think this is a great question. I don't mean to bracket them out. Um, the, I mean, the, the, the thing with the methyl iodide fight, fight is, that, um, is that the consumers remarkably got it so wrong, and yet it worked. Um, and I, 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 it was, you know, I, I wrote an article about this. I mean, because it was like they were supposedly acting as consumer citizens, but again, so many of these comments were about. My, I didn't mention some about my precious body. So, um, <laughs> so I think c consumers would ab absolutely are, would need to be part of a political struggle here. But you know, the hope is that consumers act more as citizens, as, as publics, rather than only about their own kind of body politics. Because this fumigants are not about what's going to be on. Uh, it's not about a pesticide residue. The people who are most going to be are, that are most injured by fumigants are people who live nearby. Which is also another interesting point. It's not what you asked, but some of these mitigation measures for these chemicals have gotten stronger as um, middle-class consumers have moved into neighborhoods where they're where they're fumigating. I didn't have a slide in this show, but I can show you slides where there's like rows right up to houses. So, but I don't want to dismiss, dismiss the role of the consumer, and I don't know what it would really take for consumers to be kind of more sensitive-like. I think the Coalition for Mockley Workers is actually a good example of when that shifted. Um, and in terms, of, yeah, I mean, in terms of uh, the high-value question, I mean, that's a whole nother thing. Is that that I have been really critical in my about in my writing is that the organic movement and industry has been based on a model where those who can afford to can buy their way out, mm -hmm. um, leaving the, everybody else to eat the dregs produced with, you know, the worst kind of chemicals, in, perhaps. And so there's a, a real limit to, I mean, I think, you know, you can't understate how much 
you know, the good food movement has shifted and changed and grown and changed what kind of food is available. I mean, it's kind of remarkable and beyond my expectations of even when I wrote my first book 15 years ago. Um, but it's still limited until, until you also have these kind of fights that contest industrial agriculture. It can't be a matter of just buying your way out. Well, as we know, when uh, Donald Trump becomes president, there'll be 11 million less workers. That's right. And <laughs> right, and there'll be a database of Muslims. Yeah, but, uh, <laughs> I just said that just to watch the blood going to your face. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but uh, I, I, it kind of leads into the serious part of my question, which is to do with um, uh, two parts. Firstly, have there been any successful prosecutions by workers against the employers in terms of affecting their health, and has that made any uh, significant difference in the conditions or has that acted as an impetus uh, for employers, maybe in our businesses we might imagine, or possibly to uh, adjust their practices. We had the image of the hydroponic uh, uh, gardening um, and with the increasing sophistication of uh, automated pickers, robotic pickers of various kinds. Yeah. Uh, I know strawberries are particularly yeah. difficult, but yeah. one can imagine that frogs can be more sophisticated than there could be a a massive right. displacement uh, right. gets to that equilibrium point where the, the, they decide that the, the workers are too much trouble, either political or other reasons, and uh, over time I can amortise the cost of this high capital yeah. pickup, right. and it makes sense. Or if I construct a hydroponic situation where you know the automation is is, is uh, designed into the process and everything kind of works very well together, and yeah. also maybe maximise water usage, which is obviously going more of a problem with uh, increasing ground in California. So just wondering if you've seen any of those uh, trends occurring now. Okay, well let me um, answer, I think, the second part really briefly and then go back to the first part. Um, so it is, so strawberry growers have looked into robotic pickers, which is kind of uh, an irony when you hear them in this in these conversations saying we care about worker livelihoods and then they're looking <laughs> at robotic pickers. So it's a bit like Gina Reinhardt. Yeah. yeah. Um, so um, there's that. The thing about worker prosecution of these things, um, I mean, they, many, they're mostly undocumented, so it's very risky. There's a really excellent book by a colleague of mine, Jill Harrison, who um, wrote, it's called Environmental Justice in the Pesticide Drift in the Pursuit of Environmental Justice. And she talks about the kind of the systematic ways in which farm workers are subject to drift and the way that the industry treats them as accidents. And they say it's systematic. And, and she talks about the organizing that they've done against drift. And they have drift catchers. They, I mean, they've done some stuff. I don't know if, you know, it's not so much individual lawsuits, but they've done some activism around pesticide drift but mainly not directed to industry, but directed more toward getting more protections from the state of California. Mm -hmm. um, and another piece of the story that I didn't touch on today that's really important here is that um, there's been a big change in political regime in California. So methyl iodide was approved for use when Governor Schwarzenegger <laughs> was governor, and I um, met with the head of the Department of Pesticide Regulation a few weeks ago, and because it, his predecessor really messed up in the way she registered the chemical, but he said it was coming right from the governor's office. He registered the chemical, it was registered really in the 11th hour, right before Jerry Brown, who's our current governor, a Democrat, was about to take office. Um, but the new uh, 
Department of Pesticide Regulation, and again, I met with him, he's a really lovely guy. He, um, he's a former organic farmer. He's a political appointee, so if there's a change in leadership, which there probably won't be in California for a while now, it's a pretty solid blue state, as we call it. Um, so he's a politically appointee, and he, you know, he's, uh, th so a lot of these um, chemicals are being looked at more closely because of his interests, and he's also really taking seriously when worker concerns. But he's all, you know, it's a tough position. You have to balance that with the needs of your cons your constituency, which are the growers. But I do think there's going to be some more changes, but they'll be slow and incremental. Just following that yeah. Yeah. Part about the body growers and, and, and mm -hmm. designing sort of more mm -hmm. hydroponic growth uh, studies on that line. Um, so you're saying that there hasn't been much research and development in there, or that it would be very They just can't figure out how to do it. Strawberries are so delicate. Yeah, yeah, that's been a problem. Yeah. I just thought there might have been yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's what this book, Strawberry Fields, that Miriam Wells wrote is all about, is how delicate and perishable the strawberry is. So you need a, a workforce that is conditioned to care about how it's placed in that basket and not smushed and to throw out the ones that have rot on them and that sort of thing. Hmm. Okay, I think one last question. Oh, no, not last. <laughs> <laughs> Just a question with regard I like to... flippant questions. Okay, do you still eat strawberries? And if so, what kind? <laughs> <laughs> she ate... Australian strawberries. I ate doused with chemicals, no doubt, because I wanted. I miss my beard. Now I do eat strawberries. There's like there's this um, grower who's like the poster child of the organic food movement in California. My my collaborator actually lives on his land, but he um, grows uh, a varietal that nobody else grows, and he's the only union. Uh, grower, he's the only union strawberry grower, and he was the first guy to grow organic strawberries. Is he perfect? No, my collaborator complains endlessly about him, but um, but that's the strawberries I eat, and they're really delicious. They're really good berries, <laughs> and I really actually don't like eating conventional berries. I, I really don't. No, they don't taste good. And I mean, the, I didn't talk about varietals as if varietals, but I also really don't like. What's that? It's called um, Chandler. Chandler. I, like I said, I looked yesterday, and, and um, Australia uses varietals that I think are from here because I didn't recognize any of the varietals. But New Zealand's varietals were all University of California varietals, which I thought was pretty interesting. Right. Well, um, they are. They're combination. They're generally a combination of hourly wages and piece wages, um, and it changes throughout the season because of this. They want to get people like at the end of the season when the strawberries are lower, they'll pay more wages to keep them there. But um, maybe around nine or ten on average. I mean, guys that are really fast, they can pick six, seven boxes an hour. You know, a whole crate with twelve baskets. Nine of those an hour. They get they can, they can make like fifteen. And how much do you pay for a pound of strawberries and raspberries in Uh, pretty cheap. Um, for conventional berries, which I never buy, so I really don't know. I think yeah. they can be a, a dollar, dollar fifty a basket for organic strawberries, maybe three or more. Yeah. Okay, now, um, Chair, I would like to thank Julie very much. Um,
also want to thank uh, Michelle Sandan, um, who is a wonderful organiser for the. <laughs>